The common thread in our last two episodes was that the end of England's civil war had forced its North American colonies into a defensive position. The world was suddenly very uncertain, and colonies like Virginia and Maryland found themselves having to assess exactly how they would protect their own ways of life in the face of that uncertainty. Even though New England supported the winning side in the war, and even though it was extremely happy with the defeat of the king, it found itself having to make the same sorts of decisions. You're listening to Rejects and Revolutionaries with Sarah Tinsolvola, a podcast tracing the origins of America from the Tudor era to the 20th century. New England had started to realize after Parliament won that Puritan victory wasn't going to be as simple an improvement as they had hoped. In some ways, victory was even messier than defeat, because the answers to pressing questions of exactly how to move forward were far less clear. Here, they had taken control of the country, only to find out that everybody's idea about what to do with that control was slightly different. Possibly even worse, they would have to adopt some of the very same positions that they had used so effectively to discredit the king. I mean, at this point, it's been four years of war, and not just that, but it's a completely new world. A decade earlier, the situation England was in in 1647 would have been absolutely unthinkable. The country hadn't had a conflict like this in 150 to 200 years, and even then, I don't know if the Wars of the Roses had any sort of a similar societal impact. At the end of all of this, and in fact in the midst of all of this, Parliament has control of the country, and the entire English-speaking world is going, okay, you've got your power, maybe I even supported you, I certainly paid a high price for this regardless of which side I was on, and regardless of which side I was on, I am now depending on you to govern properly in a way that makes me actually happy that you won. So what are you going to do now? And parliamentarians couldn't agree on what that should be. Answers ranged from, well, we pretty much just want what we had in 1643, to things which even by today's standards would sound like communism or anarchy. Who was going to win? What was England going to look like one, five, ten years from now? No one could even begin to guess. New England as a whole never wavered in its allegiance to the parliamentary cause. In fact, as soon as the king was defeated, it started revising its history books to erroneously give Parliament credit for issuing its beloved charter. But being on the winning side didn't make it immune to the uncertainty that the defeat of its enemies had created. They had already had to appeal to Parliament to avoid their autonomy being subverted. And perhaps even more alarmingly, New England Congregationalists found themselves surrounded by Presbyterians on the one side and Independents on the other, and they stubbornly fit in with neither group. The Presbyterians were too similar to the Anglicans. 
They supported hierarchy and widespread church membership. To get back to that classroom versus click comparison that I used months and months and months ago, Presbyterians were the only Puritan group which favored the classroom method of church governance. On the other side, though, independents had come to embrace groups that New England Congregationalists considered schismatic and heretical, and every bit is unacceptable, in fact, maybe even more so. And English independents also took great pains to avoid being associated with New England. By necessity, they had had to embrace diversity and liberty of conscience as their ideals in order to have the strength to rival the Presbyterians, and these were two things that New England had absolutely no intention of accepting. When they had sent the three New Haven ministers to Virginia, residents of Barbados had also requested ministers, but the United Colonies decided against sending them there because they had read that Barbados had too great a familist influence. New England, therefore, found itself with no real allies in the parliamentary world, and its popularity in England was waning. There were a fair number of former colonists now running around England, criticizing it for being intolerant, like Robert Child, Samuel Vassell, Thomas Letchford, and Samuel Gorton. These were of a variety of opinions, and some were quite popular. Henry Vane, too, for that matter, was a massive parliamentary figure, and even if he was friends with John Winthrop, he wasn't exactly an advertisement for New England's toleration. So this was the English world from New England's perspective. They were happy, but they were also vulnerable, and the United Colonies had just gotten through the fight over the Remonstrance of 1646, which you may recall was an attempt to put colony leadership under direct parliamentary control. In light of all of this, they decided to create a document which would outline the principles of the New England way, the Congregationalist way, a way which would allow churches to avoid both hierarchy and heresy. A group of ministers asked the general court to set this up so that the United Colonies could produce both a unified declaration of faith and a description of appropriate congregational polity, and the court agreed. The first attempt to do this didn't get the kind of traction they wanted. The general court wasn't even sure if it was quite okay for civil governments to call a synod, so they just requested that church leaders attend. And even that was too much for some of the ministers, particularly those in Boston and Salem. And Peter Hobart of Hingham obviously had no real desire to attend an event which was so against Presbyterianism. Connecticut, New Haven, and Plymouth ministers were happy to join, but Concord's pastor was sick at the time, so he also stayed home. It was kind of a wash but the ministers who attended planned to meet the next year, and they asked that before that meeting, three ministers draw up plans for what their declarations might look like. The ministers they chose were Boston's John Cotton and Richard Mather 
and Duxbury's Ralph Partridge. They would discuss the proposals at the next meeting before selecting and finalizing one. The next year's meetings had to be postponed again because of an epidemic sweeping the colony. An epidemic, in fact, which killed both John Winthrop's wife and Thomas Hooker. So they planned to meet the next year at Cambridge. And in 1648, virtually all the ministers of the United Colonies gathered at Harvard College. As the opening sermon was delivered, a snake slithered in the room and one of the pastors crushed it with his heel. The entire assembly agreed that this was a sign that it was here that they would overthrow Satan. The three ministers then presented their proposals, and it actually only took ten days for them to finalize everything. They actually made a fairly interesting choice regarding theology, which was that they just accepted the statement of the Westminster Assembly, which wasn't quite complete yet, but it was close. They didn't write their own. They just said, we've read yours and we agree with it. This was a strategic move because it highlighted their theological similarities to the Presbyterians, and it emphasized that their only disagreements were on matters of polity. It showed English Puritans, especially Presbyterians, that they were still fundamentally aligned, and it prevented any nitpicking or perception of theological differences. Plus, if there ever did come an attempt to impose the largely Presbyterian-seeming results of the Westminster Assembly on the colonies, it would put the United Colonies of New England in the position to argue that they were both theologically identical to the Presbyterians and averse to the chaos of the independents, so they should be able to keep their own system of church governance. It was a much stronger argument if it ever came to that. On matters of polity, however, they were uncompromising. New England was not a region of independence, nor one of Presbyterians. It was a region of Congregationalists. They followed their wholehearted acceptance of Presbyterian theology with a more severe rejection of Presbyterian polity than they had ever written in the past. Though they debated some of the more important details, they selected Richard Mather's proposal. Church membership would be restricted to visible saints only. There was a little bit of debate about how firm to be on this most important point. Connecticut churches were actually okay with the idea of embracing wider baptism, but John Davenport of New Haven was adamant that Congregationalist churches could not, could not waver on this principle. He said it was absolutely fundamental, an issue of the highest importance. He said it was the greatest protection that the church had against corruption. And in the case of New England, this was not untrue. They had eliminated tradition and hierarchy as methods of protecting the church from division and conflict and false teachings. I mean, let's go back to that classroom versus click analogy. How do cliques maintain their unity and identity? 
They restrict membership. And it's the exact same thing here. Congregational churches were democratic and non-hierarchical, but they still wanted everyone to agree and see things similarly. The only way, the only way to achieve both of those things simultaneously would be to only allow the people in who agree and see things similarly. Peer pressure will get you a long way, but at the end of the day, you have to be exclusive. So church membership would be restricted to the visible saints and everyone else would be spectators. Davenport ultimately swayed the majority of the synod to side with him, and this vital point decided everything else fell into place. Congregations would elect their elders. Congregations were distinct and equal. And while congregations were encouraged to cooperate, they were, at the end of the day, distinct from one another and equal to one another. No congregation and no group of congregations could coerce another one, but they could join together to support or rebuke other churches to gently keep each other on track. Every congregation would be responsible for electing its own elders and ministers. Ministers and elders would not be selected by either civil magistrates or bishops, and their ordination would be nothing more than assuming their given roles. No laying on of hands necessary. Now, that said, if a church did become problematic, if it was embracing teachings against those of the Westminster Assembly, and if its members wouldn't submit to the gentle correction of the other churches, that is when civil authorities would intervene. If things got that bad, the civil authorities would be able to do whatever they needed to to restore regional order. Ultimately, independence and democratic ideas were good, but they took second place to the priority of maintaining order and protecting regional heresy. So if a congregation misused its privileges, the civil government would stop them as it had in the past. So that's what the basic overview of a New England congregational church would look like according to what became known as the Cambridge Platform. And if you've listened to this podcast for any appreciable amount of time, it should sound extremely familiar. It's essentially how their congregations have been operating for over a decade at this point, since the earliest years of the colony. Much like Maryland's Toleration Act, this was a codification of ideals written in order to both solidify and defend the continued adherence to those ideals. And much like the Toleration Act, this became a massively important document for American history, though in a somewhat different way. Firstly, the ideals set forth in the Cambridge Platform underpin a massive percentage of American churches to this day. It was used explicitly for 200 years by Orthodox Congregationalists, Unitarians, Baptists, Universalists, Disciples of Christ, and other denominations, but more than that, it articulated what would become the fundamentally American approach to religion. Yes, there have been a few alterations through the centuries, and yes, Virginia had 
a fairly strong Episcopal presence, but almost everything you think about American religion comes down to this document. It's about independent control with wider cooperation. One of the articles that I read about the Synod reflected that though Christian beliefs don't really change over time, polity always reflects the society in which the church exists. And that was an interesting observation to me. They said that the beliefs aren't what changes. Governance is the thing that changes, and it changes in a way that's a reflection of what's going on around people at the time. This observation led this particular author to feel that the Cambridge Synod's solidifying of this congregational model, this model of independent local control with wider cooperation, led to the township model, which de Tocqueville felt in the 19th century was so important to American liberty, and even to the state-federal model, which emerged in the Constitution. I don't know to what extent this theory is true, but I'm sure it didn't hurt. Regardless, this means that 1648 was the year that two of the most important documents in American colonial history were written, and both were written as a result of their respective colonies looking around at the end of the First English Civil War, realizing just how much their ways of life were in jeopardy, assessing what was most important to defend about those ways of life, what exactly would protect everything else they valued, and drafting laws to protect those things. Virginia had done the same thing, but it had decided on tradition, and this put it on somewhat of a unique course, which we'll discuss over time. It's kind of a trio, though. Liberty, tradition, and order, and how familiar does that sound even today? Extending our focus a little bit, Barbados had tried to choose personal civility in a very similar way, but it was, by 1648, rapidly losing its battle to defend this. Poor Barbados. But extending our focus even further than that, you could even connect this general dynamic to the attitude of the clubmen in the English countryside. If I can just protect my town from outsiders, it'll be okay. If I can just have liberty, it'll be okay. If I can just have tradition, it'll be okay. If I can just have order, it'll be okay. If I can just have personal civility, it'll be okay. If I can just protect my town, it'll be okay. For all its impact, the Cambridge platform had its problems too, especially when adopted in its entirety and not just in spirit. In true New England style, this was a rigid and uncompromising document, and it did nothing to alleviate criticisms that the region was intolerant. It created this one specific way that churches had to work, and it embraced a fairly strict theological vision, and this excluded a lot of the colony from participation in any real decision-making. It also left enforcement up to the general court, so that any time a person or region deviated from the norm, they could be punished. A couple weeks ago, I said that Puritans would have to contend with the same issues of radicals and heretics that Anglicans did, 
and that they, especially the more conservative independents, would have to figure out how to do this without appealing to tradition and hierarchy. For congregationalists, the answer was in conformity, which was passively maintained by excluding most people and which could be actively maintained by civil punishment. If we look forward a few years to the persecution that people like the Quakers endured in New England, in the United Colonies, and which they endured there far more severely than in any other English colonies, a lot of the foundation for that was also a result of that New England congregational model, which was solidified here. So, This was just a very New England thing, with all the successes and all the failures which so strongly characterized the region. Apart from the Cambridge platform, there are a couple of things worth noting before we go. The end of the war pushed New England into a new era. This era saw the deputies and magistrates of Massachusetts united, which led to a few reforms, albeit highly moderated ones. For instance, Massachusetts widened its franchise in 1647, but it didn't include non-church members, as the deputies had originally wanted, except in purely local elections. They also passed a Book of Laws, which was something else that the deputies had always pushed for. This era, though, also saw the United Colonies embrace their rigidity in a way that they really hadn't done before. In one way, it freed them to be severe in a way that the king wouldn't have accepted, but they also wanted to avoid the chaos which was engulfing England. Plus, there was that idea that by creating a sin-free society, they could bring about the millennium, that thousand-year rule of the saints, and all of that combined to encourage the region to embrace its lowest instincts. That tendency toward excessive rigidity and severity had always been there, witnessed again and again and again in things like cutting off Philip Ratcliffe's ears, or the exile of Roger Williams, or the antinomian controversy, or the treatment of Robert Keane, but there had also been this urge, embodied in people like Winthrop, to at least moderate it, and that really disappeared in the aftermath of the war. Given this, it's perhaps unsurprising that 1648 brought another first to New England when Margaret Jones of Charlestown was tried and executed for witchcraft. This was done according to the methods prescribed by witchfinder general Matthew Hopkins in his book, which had been published in England the year before. The story is so familiar that it's almost cliché. Jones was a midwife who practiced medicine, or the 17th century version of medicine. Some of her patients, though, said that she had told them that they would never get better without her medicine, and sometimes they didn't recover when they should have, and sometimes people reacted more strongly to her medicines than they expected to, and sometimes she predicted things which came true, 
and she had a minor deformity. When she was put in jail, people reported seeing supernatural things like a small child who then disappeared. She was furious and frantic when she was tried, and she was furious and frantic when she was executed the same day. Her husband left the colony after this happened, and when the ship that he was on started to experience turbulence, he was put in its jail, and the ship reportedly steadied. Years later, a man named John Hale added his voice to the record. He had been 11 when she was executed, and he had been her neighbor and had actually visited her in jail. Later, he had become a minister who had actually tried witches until his own wife was accused of witchcraft and he turned against the practice. At this point in his life, he wrote this account of Jones's death, and he said that the whole thing had started when she got into an argument with her neighbors. They then went to the general court and accused her of witchcraft, saying that some of their livestock had gotten sick after that argument. This was only the first of three wars, though, and in 1648, the fighting in England would resume, bringing with it a whole new set of challenges, and that is what we'll get into next week.